0: I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Gary Goldberg, a producer and writer for television and film. His TV sitcoms include the 1982 show Family Ties, starring Michael Fox, as well as Brooklyn Bridge and Spin City. Gary has written a memoir called Sit, Ubu, Sit. Ubu is the name of his production company, which he founded in 1981, named after his black Labrador retriever, Ubu. Welcome.
1: Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: You fell into a career in writing accidentally, and you didn't know that you wanted to become a writer until you were in your 30s. How did that discovery happen?
1: it really was based on the fact that i had been this giant failure in the eyes of the world from the time i was i would say 20 to 31 i was actually 31 at the time and i, I had so i had never graduated college i i had been asked to leave more than one but less than four uh, universities and my wife who was the super student of all time was going on to get like a triple master's degree on the way to her PhD. And I was just tagging along at San Diego State University and just taking care of the baby and the Labrador, you know, Ubu. So that was really it. So I needed credits everywhere. I needed a thousand credits. And so I took a beginning writing class and it happened that the writer was a gentleman by the name of Nate Monister who was a past president of the Writers Guild. The assignment was to write a television commercial. And I was older and I just had no, really no interest in that, but I thought, well, I'm in this class and I, maybe I should try to write something. So I went up to Nate. Uh, I said, you know, I, I'm not trying to get out of the assignment, but I don't want to do a commercial. Can I just try to write something? And he said, great. So I started to write about when I was a waiter at the Village Gate in New York during the 60s, late 60s, which was kind of a turning point in my life. And it was interesting to me as I sat down to write I could transport myself back to the village gate. I could hear dialogue, I could hear individual voices, I could hear you know, silverware you know, drinks being poured, and it was startling. And I wrote and I had a good time, so I hand in these pages, and we were not economically solvent at this point, so we couldn't afford a telephone. Our phone was with in our neighbor's apartment. So he came over and he said, hey Gary, there's a guy from the college who wants to talk to you, and I walk across the yard, and it's Nate Monister, and he said, um, Okay, you have to come in and see me. You have to come in now. It was a Sunday, and so I go to see uh, Nate Monister and he's, I walk in, he's got my script there, and he looks up at me and he goes, uh, you can't be in this class. He said, um, you're a writer. Mm. You're a writer. I have nothing to teach you. I don't want to get in the way. You have an individual voice. It's unique. I, I just, I don't want to be involved here in trying to change it or even comment on it other than to say it's very compelling. And you know, I was saying, whoa, you know, uh, what are you saying here? I'm, and he said, well, you can definitely make a living here, you know, at this. Mm. What are your favorite television shows? Well, we didn't even have a TV, you know. So I said, well, I don't know. So he said, well, you should look at TV.
0: There was a, a motel liquidating its furniture, and that's where you bought your television.
1: Yes, we got this big black and white set, and we plugged it in, and Diana was standing over my right shoulder, I remember, and we watched this show comes on called Get Christy Love. And I watched about... 10 minutes of it. And then I turned to Dan and I said, well, I I can do this. I I think I can do this.
0: Before this epiphany moment, you had been meandering professionally. You had been a waiter in Greenwich Village. You dabbled in acting. You were a postal worker temporarily.
1: I was the worst actor, one of the worst actors ever. (gasps) I was actually just trying to meet girls then. It was before I met my wife. I wasn't actually a great postal worker either. I I was not a good worker. Mm. I just had trouble focusing Um, I remember my dad would always say, what's going to become of you?
0: Yet, despite the difficulty that you had in focusing, it seemed like your parents had this unconditional acceptance of you. You grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. And from your book, it seems like you, you grew up in a very loving, accepting household.
1: Yeah, I think the most accepting person was my father. His love was unconditional. Mom's love was conditional on good grades. And she liked it when you fit into that pattern of moving forward, you know. And yeah, we were overloved as kids. Whatever craziness existed in our family, it was clear to my brother, Sally and myself that it really came from this just enormous love, this, this well of love.
0: Incidentally, you said before you were a failure in the eyes of the world. Were you a failure in your eyes?
1: I wasn't, you know, because I had this great love I was involved in, this romance that I'm still involved in with my now wife, Diana Meehan. So I could see interpersonally how happy we were and how we were exploring and discovering things together and and putting things in place. And what I was learning from her, she was much more daring Uh, physically than I was you know I remember one time she had come in and she said you know uh, we we have to go up the Alaskan highway because it's going to be paved soon (laughs) and I was thinking well shouldn't we wait till they pave it and then we'll go I would say without any good thing that's happened really has come from Diana and my relationship with her and just the way she saw me as a person I was just really lucky
0: you met Diana at a party in Brooklyn in 1969. She at the time was playing the guitar, and she was a Pan Am stewardess. Uh, and in your book, you said, I was always and am always writing for an audience of one. And it's, it's, um, it's just lovely to see.
1: Thank you. I remember there, there's something in the book, and this is really true. I went, I went for a psychic reading, you know, and the woman said, um, never leave the woman you're with. You're nothing without her. Mm. And I said, could I take my coat off? You know, I mean, I, I get that. I know that.
0: During the-, the time when you were in the desert uh, professionally before you found your writing career, uh, one of the jobs you had was opening uh, a daycare center in California after your, do- your first daughter was born.
1: It was an interesting time for us. Diana and I had been together for about five years, uh, roughly at this point, and we had spent 24 hours a, a day together uh, every day. And we had hitchhiked around the world, and I was, again, fortunate with Diana because Diana didn't want furniture or a house. I mean, when we first met, I said to her, look, if you're looking for a guy who's going to make a living, it's not me, okay? Mm-hmm. There's nothing I want to own. I don't, I don't want furniture. I don't want a house. I don't want a car. So all of a sudden, we're pregnant, and... Um, we knew some friends who had run a daycare center, and it was, we could do the math. It was $100 a month, I think. They had 12 kids, $1,200 a month. Diane and I sat down and figured, tried to figure out how to spend $1,200 a month. We could not spend all 1200 no matter how many times we went to the movies. You know, So we just thought we want to be together, and I want to be with the baby every day. And um, so we came up with this idea of getting a big old house, and then we would run the daycare center in the bottom part. We were in Berkeley, and it was called the Organic Daycare Center. And you have to know your audience. Our motto was, we take your kid on a trip every day. There was no structure. There, was just, there seemed to be you know, dogs running everywhere. Uh, you know, it was chaotic. But what people liked is there was a man and a woman, and we had our own baby, and it, it worked really well.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the award-winning writer and producer Gary Goldberg. In 1981, he created Ubu Productions after his dog. And in 1982, he created the family sitcom Family Ties, starring Michael J. Fox, which ran for seven seasons and launched Michael's acting career. His other shows include Brooklyn Bridge and Spin City. How did not having an ambition early on to be a TV writer almost help your, your TV writing, if at all?
1: When I started to write, and I think this was my secret weapon coming up to L.A. also to do it, which was I wanted to do it a certain way or I didn't want to do it, which comes from it never actually having been a dream of mine. Right. You know, so it wasn't like I have to do this at, at all costs. I, I, I thought, well, I'd like to do this if I can do it a certain way. And Diana was always the one who would read what I wrote, and her opinion of it mattered to me more than anyone else's. And so the fact that with Family Ties and shows that we did – that Diana was on board with that and really a big fan was very important to me. Had she not liked that work, I don't think I would have continued with it no matter what.
0: Yeah, well, it seems that there are a handful of people who impact the course of your life, and it seems that Nate Monister was that for you professionally, and, of course, Diana uh, was that personally.
1: And, and the third person in that uh, holy triangle for me is Michael Fox, who is... Uh, you know, another angel who came down to uh, to be in my life, you know,
0: speaking of Michael Fox and switching to family ties, Michael Fox wasn't the original uh, actor who was going to be Alex P. Keaton. It was Matthew Broderick, and the deal fell through,
1: yeah. Matthew was um one of the maybe the first person I saw for the for the part. and then I think Matthew. Uh, his dad was not well. And I think he also had a clear picture that his New York theatrical life was going to take off. And, and he chose to not go forward. And and then, you know, because I'm from Brooklyn and we have these attachments, you know, I, I, it took me so long to get over that. And Mike Fox came in. I saw him way too soon after losing Matthew, and I wasn't available to his charms, you know. Mm.
0: And actually, Judith Weiner, the casting director, begged you to yeah. look at him not just once but twice. Could you tell us that story?
1: Yeah, well, Judith was, who's no longer on this plane, was an extraordinary person and an extraordinary talent as a casting director. We were very much like a married couple, you know. Was very, we could say anything. To Judith said, you have made a terrible mistake. I said, Judith, I think I know the character. It's not this boy. She said, this is the boy. And I said, can we just move on? And we saw a lot of other people, and we weren't getting close. And Judith would always say to me, it's Michael Fox. See Michael Fox again. And meanwhile, we did another project which uh, was very well-reviewed. And so we we're down in Washington, D.C., where the premiere was, for some reason, the press tour. And I'd called Judith and I'd been drinking heavily at the party, I had many margaritas. And I said to Judith, I just want you to know you're getting rave reviews for the casting and thank you very much. And uh, she said, you're in a good mood. I said, I'm in a great mood. She said, would you do me a favor? And I said, anything, senorita, you know? And, and she said, see Michael Fox again. <laughs> just see him again. I said, I'll do it but only because I love you because I know he's not the guy. So Mike came in the second time and he was Mike and I was available to see it. And after he, he left the office, I turned to Judith and I said, why didn't you tell me about him? This is the guy.
0: When you finally did hire Michael Fox before the show started, you had trouble seal, sealing that deal because you couldn't find him. Could you tell us about that?
1: Well, one of the great things, you know how moments occur, you know? Michael Fox said later to me, if I didn't get family ties, I was giving up. I'd been pushed around and overlooked, and I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. So he had no money. He was selling off furniture to stay alive. So he didn't have a phone, something I could certainly relate to. So um, he was using this pioneer chicken outlet up on Highland Avenue as his office. So I called Bob Gersh, his agent. I said, Bob, we wanna make the deal. And he said, I have to wait till he checks in. I go, what do you mean? He goes, he's gonna go to the chicken place and call me.
0: Finally, you convinced yourself that Michael Fox was the right person. But Brandon Tartikoff, who was the president of NBC, green-lighted the show and said, yes, Gary, we're going to do family ties, but on one condition, we use someone other than Michael Fox. Uh, And you fought for Michael.
1: Well, Brandon was a genius, you know, and so he was trying to help. You know, it certainly didn't seem like it at the time. His suggestion was that we replace Michael. And I said, you you can't. That's crazy. I mean— He's the guy, and I couldn't do it. I mean, I would rather there not be a show. It it wasn't a hard fight with Brandon, you know, and they basically said fairly quickly, basically, if okay, if you feel that strongly about it, let's just go with Michael."
0: In your book, you say that Michael Fox delivered Brandon, after the show was a success, a lunchbox with Michael's face on the cover of it, and inside was crow. And there's this idiom to eat crow. What does eat
1: crow mean? It means to admit your mistake and eat, eat, you know, I'd eat, I'll eat my hat. Mm. Well, this is it. Eat your hat. <laughs> but well, what, Because Brandon had said about, well, I said, why don't you want Michael Fox? And they said, well, is this the kind of face that'll be on a lunchbox? And mm-hmm. I said, well, I don't know, a thermos maybe. I mean, how <laughs> can you cast like that? <laughs> But what was so great about Brandon is Brandon had that lunchbox on his desk. (laughs) So it was the first thing you saw when you walked into his office.
0: Also, there was a little bit of a a pivot in the show. Uh, You you initially thought the show would be centered around parents, uh, you know, echoing your life with Diana. But it ended up being more about the kids.
1: That really is just testament to the power of Michael Fox. You know, it's like you draft Michael Jordan you change your offense. I don't Mm. care what your offense was the week before. Mm. Or if you have Joe Montana, you all of a sudden go into the West Coast offense because that works for Joe Montana. Well, we had Michael Jordan and Joe Montana. We had Michael Fox. He was, it was something that could not be uh, denied.
0: NBC aired all seven seasons of Family Ties, but this is after CBS turned you down. What's the story there?
1: Well, it was, you know, that almost anything that's worked has been turned down somewhere. E.T. was turned down at Columbia. Star Wars was turned down at Fox. I mean, they hated it so much that they let George Lucas keep the copyright to it. You know, Mm. the first uh, screening of of, uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, they wanted to take out the song Moon River. You know, I mean, there is just a history of this. So no one gets kind of nervous when your show is turned down. It's just, do I have another uh, option? I, I was fortunate in that my deal with CBS was not exclusive which is another example of what we were after when we came in. CBS had offered me two ways to structure the deal I had with them. Uh, One was um, guaranteed shows on the air, but I'd be exclusive, Mm -hmm. or guaranteed pilots, but I wouldn't be exclusive. And, you know, I had a wonderful attorney, still my attorney, Skip Rittenham. And Skip said, you won't be happy being exclusive. It's just not for you. And I, re- I remember being arrogant. You think, well, my show's gonna get on the air anyway. Why do I need this exclusivity? And the first thing is Family Ties, and it doesn't get on. They won't even film the pilot, but luckily then I could move it. So Brand- I called Brandon, I said, i want to send you the script. And Brandon said, I love it, I'll do it. Let's make the pilot. And, but that- that's a- almost common.
0: By the way, as I'm sitting here with you and I'm listening to your stories of your saying no, no, you know, to the establishment, even while you were basically just starting, um, you were very athletic growing up. To what extent did, did your your athleticism help with the confidence that you had to even be carried into your professional life?
1: I think it was key for me. Uh, and, in, you know, I remember my daughter's one time saying to me, Dad, not every problem in life can be solved with a story about sports. And I said, well, actually, it can. And, and, it, and it, it is. That's what life is, you know. There were two things. One is to physicalize the work. So I always felt that we outworked other shows. So for every page that got on the screen on Family Ties, we wrote 30. You know, and we would just keep practicing, keep rehearsing, keep rewriting, trying to make it better. The other thing about growing up from Brooklyn was Brooklyn was confrontational. There were limited resources and a lot of people who wanted them. And at some point, there was gonna be a fight of some kind. So my way of dealing with it always, well, let's fight now. You know, I don't need to wait four hours or a week. I could tell we're not getting anywhere here, so this is now the fight.
0: You were so aggressive, your mom would come to your basketball games, for instance, and say, I don't know who that boy is.
1: Yes, and that aggression actually w- was also how we did the show. And we, as I said, we never stopped. And Mike Fox especially was a guy, you could give him a new script as he was going out or the the morning of, and he would look at it and just boom, boom, boom. Okay, got it. And if he couldn't do that, I I knew I hadn't written it right. But the sports part of it was we did the show live in front of an audience. So when we would get a big laugh, very successful scene, at the end of the scene, I would run up and hug the person who had done the setup, you know, not the person who made the basket. So I wanted everyone to understand you don't get that laugh. Without that setup, you don't get that. Without the assist, you don't get that basket.
0: Now, you filmed in front of a live studio audience, and so it was really every week creating a 23-minute play. So it was more almost like theater rather than tapes television. How did that impact your writing or the success of the show?
1: Well, it was great for me because you use that word. I would say Friday night was our game. And so we everything we had to do was get from Monday to Friday. So it's like, if you're great in practice, that doesn't mean anything. I was not a great practice player. So I had sympathy for guys like Michael who didn't want to over-rehearse, right? If you're great any time before Friday night, it's a waste. And, and so my whole deal of coaching, in, in effect, these actors was trying to figure out their rhythms Michael Gross gets to Friday night in a different way than Michael Fox.
0: How different would the show be if it hadn't been in front of a live studio audience? I mean, it's always hard to talk about the counterfactual, but would would it have been the success that it
1: was? No, no way. Because Michael Fox is a different human being in front of an audience. And what we would go Monday through Friday, and whenever he would get it, he'd go, Gary, I got it. Basically, just don't make me show it to you. I got it. I know what I'm gonna do here. Don't make me do it. Hmm. Cause I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna dunk, but I don't know if it's gonna be over the hand backwards or, <laughs> cause this is how we actually talk.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the award-winning writer and producer Gary Goldberg. In 1981, he created Ubu Productions after his dog, Ubu. And in 1982, he created the family sitcom Family Ties, starring Michael J. Fox, which ran for seven seasons and launched Michael's acting career. Other shows include Brooklyn Bridge and Spin City, also starring Michael Fox. By the way, you mentioned that E.T. was turned down by one of the production companies. Uh, you are friends with Steven Spielberg and when he was telling you about his idea for E.T. you thought it was the worst idea ever
1: as always I had my finger on the pulse you know (laughs) Uh, it's a little more complicated than that but it's not far well the E.T. thing he's telling me this idea you know and Diana was there too and he had to go take a phone call and I said to Diana okay this is the worst idea I've ever heard and I said here's the thing he's so big now no one will tell him the truth It's up to us, his real friends, that we have to tell him the truth. And he came back and I said, you can't do this, okay? You just can't do this. And uh, Shauna was there, and Shauna kept saying, I like it, Dad. I think it's really good.
0: Your daughter. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And she was 11, I think. And Stephen said, I like it. I'm doing it.
0: Did Stephen give you a lunchbox with Crow (laughs) inside?
1: No, I think he's such a gentleman that I think he's forgotten.
0: You had a loyal team of writers uh, at Family Ties to help create the success of the show. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: I had unbelievable writers, you know, that were in our life for a long time, especially at the beginning with Michael Whitehorn, who went on to do a show, King of Queens. But again, I want to backtrack to my sports. My instincts was I met Michael Whitehorn. Two other producers had met him beforehand and not hired him. To me, that's like saying you had a chance to draft you know, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and you didn't. It was like, I met Michael Whitehorn eight minutes into the meeting. I said, oh, no, oh, no, don't leave it. Don't go anywhere. Let's hammer out the deal here.
0: Did you hire writers from other disciplines as well?
1: One of the things that happens sometimes in show business, happens in a lot of disciplines, is people are talking only to their people in their own universe, and you have a very skewed idea of what's actually going on in the world. So one of the things I wanted every year was to bring in somebody from another discipline who'd never been in show business. And I got really lucky. So I would meet people at parties or whatever and you know, I'd say, come on, you you don't have to be in advertising. You could come and be in our in our world, you know. So I had great success with that. Um, uh, Whitehorn was a school teacher. Mark Lawrence, who's went on to this brilliant career directing and writing movies. He was a college dropout. He had uh, dropped out of NYU Law School, and Mark had sent in a spec script. And I read this script, it's as good as anything we're doing. Mm -hmm. It just is. I call him up, he's in Long Island, and I go, hey Mark, um, you know, you sent us a script, it's really good. I want you to come out and be on the show, and be on on the staff. He goes, I don't like to fly, (laughs) you know. I go, well, you know, well, that's right, you're right. This makes sense. You stay where you are. We'll move family ties to Syosset. I said, get on a plane and get out here. You know, and he finally he did. Is I think his aunt was representing him, and he, we get him and he's perfect. He's in t-shirt, shorts, red sneakers, and he he said, uh, my mother said I should wear a suit, but I don't have one. You mm. know? I said, come, come, you've come to the right place.
0: Let's just say your financial status changed with Family Ties, and Ubu Productions, which was your production company, became this, this empire, and you were able to start producing other shows as well. Um, why was it uh, so financially successful to you personally? Was there some um, f- uh, deal with NBC that fell through to, to catalyze that?
1: It was interesting that I was at a moment in time when uh, this was available. It was almost like when the American Football League started up against the NFL, and so some mediocre players or average players were able to command unbelievable salaries just because there was all of a sudden a bidding war. So studios at this point, in right around 1980, 81, had realized that they had missed the boat on these situation comedies, which were money makers. I was blessed to be represented by a Skip Brittenham, who saw the future and Skip was able to basically alter the flow of money because he could con- reconceptualize how it was distributed. I co-owned the show with Paramount Studios. The deal I had with Paramount was they put up all the money. I own 33 and a third percent of the back end of, of Family Ties or any show I created there. And that was gross dollars. They couldn't do any bookkeeping tricks to keep me from getting it.
0: Whereas before, you might have gone 12.5% net profit. Yes. I could
1: give you, at this moment, 100% of the net of Family Ties, which is probably grossed over a billion dollars, and you wouldn't see a penny. You couldn't buy a latte with that net. So there is no net. And so I had real economic investment in these shows. And... um, when family ties hit, it came in a staggering you know, amount of money, like, at once.
0: How did this financial success impact you as a couple uh, who was, wasn't was used to that?
1: Interestingly for us, that was the only thing that ever threatened us as a couple. We never had any romantic construct for being wealthy people. It was actually the opposite. You know, we, we had no interest in that or being that, you know, so it was upsetting in a way and and threatening and really threatened you know who we were to each other and uh the the, the thing that always worked for us was it was me and diana against the world and now money really changes everything if, if you if people don't think money changes everything it hasn't been enough money because it changes everything changes the way people look at you changes the way you look at the world um the best of you begin to feel you're entitled to certain things that other people aren't entitled to, there's no question you have to work your way through this. Um, and everyone has an idiot moment.
0: What was an example of that for that you? Was,
1: you know, where you walk into a Mercedes dealer and barefoot and go, I want that car. And then, but luckily in Hollywood, you know, they had seen enough <laughs> of that that they more or less know it's just another idiot kid who's somehow <laughs> gotten some money. I bought that Mercedes that it was the first time I think it was like the first $100,000 car, everyone knew what it cost, and it had the automatic top and all that. People, You drive by, people would give you the finger, you know, and rightly so. And the funny thing is, I hated the car. I just hated it from the minute I got it. And it got stolen. And I was in a restaurant, and the guy came in, he said, did you have the blue Mercedes? I said, no, no, I had the Pasta Primavera. I have a blue Mercedes. <laughs> he goes, well, you don't anymore. It was just been stolen. And he said, what do you want us to do? I said, I just want you to forget about it. I couldn't be happier. I don't have this car anymore. And when they found it, I said, I don't want it back. I just, I don't want it. It just was, I was not comfortable in that car. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've worked your way through it. It's. Uh, I think I would have a trouble going back to not having money now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But... Because especially as you get older, it just gives you a certain freedom from idiots. You know, I would say the thing that most works in my life, I don't spend two minutes a day doing something I don't want to do or being with someone I don't want to be with. I'm never in a position of having to falsely flatter anyone. And I'm almost never in a position where I'm trying to get something from someone.
0: So you're, you're financially successful now, uh, but there was one night when you were in your Central Park West apartment in New York City, and you, you looked out the window. You, you actually put your head out the window, and you screamed, I need $14 million. And this was in the context of an entrepreneurial pursuit of Diana's. Can you, can you explain that?
1: My wife has really changed the lives of, uh, of girls in Los Angeles by creating the school, the Archer School for Girls, which was the first school founded on all the new research that had come out that showed that girls actually learn differently. And the genius of Diana's idea was that it not be a school for rich kids, that it have a 35% scholarship base. These girls are now at Princeton, at Yale, at Harvard, at Brown, Um, but we needed a lot of money because we needed to buy this building and we had bought it and the neighbors... Um, who were an, a, a un, really unpleasant group, decided to fight the school going in there. So we had mortgaged everything that we owned at this point, and, and so everything was now um, against that. And when it was time to now pay the money. And I delve in the psychic realm and uh, have had some really interesting conversations. One of these women had said to me, the universe really is always available to help you. You have to be very specific and you have to ask for it and say, thank you. And I s- used to stand out there every night before I went to sleep.
0: Stand out where? I mean,
1: look out that window overlooking Central Park.
0: With the window open. With the
1: window open and scream out into Central Park, I need $14 million. It's not for me. It's for the Archer School. It's going to change girls' lives. I need $14 million. Thank you. And I was worried because Spielberg lived two floors above and Bono was above in the penthouse. And God seems to really like them a lot, too. And I was afraid that he would hear the scream, but give them the money. So I had to it tell 13D, it's apartment 13D, where the money has to come.
0: Because the money came from Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, who was the founder of DreamWorks.
1: Yeah, Jeffrey was, uh, and he... Stephen and David, they were willing to to help. And so there was this little period there where, theoretically, this money was coming in, but it wasn't 100%. And they said, we, we'll, we'll do it. We'll give you the $14 million now and give it to Diana.
0: Ubu Productions was named after your black lab, Ubu, who really traveled the world with you and Diana. And you have this iconic photo that was after every episode uh, I remember as a child of Family Ties. Where was that photo taken? And what does it mean to you?
1: Well, Diana actually took that photo. And it was taken in 1969 as we were hitchhiking our way back to America because Diana was pregnant. And we we had to get back to America. It was taken in front of the Louvre in Paris. And we actually had run out of money that day. I don't mean we had like a little bit of money. We had no money. It was gone. And Diana was pregnant. And Ubu had his Frisbee. And and I, I remember thinking how happy I was that day, how lucky I was. And I could look at my life and see the blessings of it, see Diana in my life, see the baby coming, see Ubu, who was a great friend to me and would always look at me like, you can do this, you know, you can do anything. The two, the two beings who always thought I could do anything were Diana and Ubu. And I just thought, I don't want very much distance between who I am today and who I may one day ever be. And so when the company was formed, we started, I thought, I want to remember that. And so that logo at the end always kept me from taking it all too seriously. The bark at the end is not Ubu, it's the sound engineer yeah. yeah, he threw it in. It's a human barking. He threw it in at the end. We had, you know, you do several of those, Sit, Ubu, Sit, which is my voice, and Good Dog. And then uh, at one of them, he went, Roof! and I, he said, what do you think? I said, I like it. Let's <gasps> keep it in, you know. So,
0: well, Thank you very much for joining us.
1: It's really been my pleasure, Jessica. Thanks for having me.
0: My guest has been the writer and producer, Gary Goldberg. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.
1: What would we do, baby? Us. Sit ubu sit
0: good dog